Chapter 22 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. It so chanced that we recrossed the channel in the Iron Duke, which three weeks before had conveyed us to Kingston. It was a glorious moonlit England, and the boat seemed to plough its way over the sea of molten silver. We spent the greater portion of the night on the deck. A long wooden bench, which bore some relation to that plank which had a softer side, served for a couch. An old gentleman, who was pacing the deck, after passing us once or twice, deprived himself of his voluminous woolen cloak and spread it over me. I looked up to remonstrate, but the attempt was useless. Something in his action seemed to say that he had a daughter at home. When I awoke from a dreamy slumber, I found a couple of overcoats folded carefully over my feet, and Mrs. R. was similarly projected. We could only divine whence they came by singling out certain shivering figures that walk rapidly to and fro in the moonlight minus the comfortable outer garment. Towards morning the cold became so intense that we were obliged to take refuge in the close cabin and encounter the seasick consequences. We landed at Liverpool soon after daylight, and in about an hour, during which I wrote to London, took the train for Carlisle. At four o'clock we reached Carlisle, remained half an hour, then proceeded to Newcastle, where we arrived at eight on Friday evening. That night we passed at a hotel, and early the next morning went in search of apartments. To our wonder and gratification, they were found almost as readily as those in Dublin, and again seemed mysteriously prepared for our reception through the agency of the invisible avant-courier before mentioned. Our first care was to send to the theatre for letters. There was one from the invalid at home, dated Thursday morning and Thursday night. It was written in the same placid and hopeful strain as all the others, which had cheered me during my absence. I noticed but one difference. The writing was singularly uneven, and on some lines there were written but two words, as though they were traced by one who did not see but only guessed at the space. This had, doubtless, been the case. Nothing in the tone of the letter betrayed a feebler state of body than usual. On Saturday there was no letter. It was the first day since I left London that had brought no tones from that voice at a distance. Anxious pulses began to beat. Their throbbing was painfully quickened when Sunday came and went and brought no news. Monday morning I sent to the post office. The mail had not yet arrived. It was very late that day, and we learned the mail due on the day previous had missed altogether. This accounted for my having no letters. I should certainly have two that day. With renewed hope, I went to my first rehearsal in that strange, cold, vast theatre, one of the largest in England. Mrs. Renshaw accompanied me. As we were passing the box office, 
on our way behind the scenes the doorkeeper seeing our strange faces inquired is that mrs mallet on receiving my answer he replied i have a great pile of letters for you ma'am there are several back mails this morning and placed a large package of epistles in my eagerly extended hands very hurriedly i glanced over them to select the well-known writing it was not there again i looked through the gathering mist that clouded my sight there were many familiar hands but one was missing a note in mr davenport's writing attracted my attention that must give me information i broke it open and turned to the last lines before i had courage to glance at the first they reassured me the letter was dated friday and had probably been posted too late for the day's mail he was paying mr mallet a visit and wrote in his stead the latter seemed somewhat weaker than usual too weak to manage a pen and besides he appeared inclined to sleep as i looked up from the letter i perceived that the manager mr davis was waiting to address me several of the company had assembled without my noticing them and were scanning the stranger with inquisitive eyes after exchanging a few words with mr davis whom i had seen but twice before i inquired if delaying the rehearsal it is past the hour he replied and everybody is here but if you wish to read your letters i interrupted him with i have read the only important one and i will not detain you he was leading the way to the stage and i following the package of letters seemed to burn my hands and i glanced over them again my eye caught sight of another note in mr davenport's writing and above the address the startling word immediate i paused too much alarmed to apologize to my conductor and hastily tore open the letter it was dated saturday and after a gentle preparation intimated that he feared mr mallet was worse mr d with other friends passed the day at his bedside he did not appear to suffer but was very feeble there was a p s dated four o'clock stating that no change had taken place up to that hour the writer's duty at the theatre he said would force him to leave at six i was folding the letter as composedly as i could when i noticed a third letter in the same hand upon it too was the terrible word immediate i opened it the date was sunday morning it was strange that i should have opened them accidentally in order of their dates the first lines were all i read they had told me the worst the voice of consoling angels whispered god is not the god of the dead but of the living for all live unto him i hardly know what took place but i remember the gentle ministerings of the considerate manager and of my weeping attendant as soon as i was able we returned to our lodgings my packet of epistles contained numerous letters of condolence and several most pressing invitations from intimate friends offering the hospitalities of their roofs i accepted that of the friend who had been the most tried the most devoted to him who was gone a friend whose wife daughters son and nephew as well as himself had each in turn watched over and cheered the departing spirit through its long but gentle struggles to be disenthralled 
Mr. Davis wrote to him and made all the arrangements for my return to London. We started at six o'clock the next morning. The attentive manager took charge of us to the station, provided for our comfort on the road, and performed every office that the kindest of hearts could dictate. We arrived in London late that evening, after a journey of sadness which I need not describe. For the next few weeks I took up my residence with friends now doubly endeared. From the faithful nurse, Mrs. E., I received a minute account of the last days and last hours which I had not been permitted to witness. On Thursday night, the then sinking invalid wrote to me for the last time. On Friday, he was unusually feeble, but composed as ever. Mr. Davenport passed the last day with him, and he gave various directions with his habitual clearness and precision. On Saturday morning he seemed slightly worse, and inquired, with considerable anxiety, if the postman had not made his rounds. A little before ten o'clock the daily missive was placed in his hands. It was written at Liverpool during the hour that we stopped on our way to Newcastle. He opened the note and held it a long time before his eyes without turning the page. He appeared unable to see the words. After a while he looked up at Mrs. E., who was standing beside him, and holding out the note, said, in a faint voice, Read me Lily's letter. They were the last words he ever spoke. She took the letter and read. When she had finished, she looked at him. His face, she said, had a strangely changed. It was white as marble and quite rigid. She spoke to him, but he did not answer. She bent her head and felt his breath upon her cheek. Then she thought he was sleeping. She sat beside him to watch, but the strange expression, the death look in his face, as she turned it, terrified her, and she sent a messenger for Mr. Davenport, and another one for Mr. M., the friend who I mentioned above. They came, the latter with his wife and daughter. Mr. M. tried to rouse the slumberer, and, fancying that he had partly succeeded, took the open letter that lay beside him and read it aloud to attract his attention, but the heavy eyes closed again and gave no sign of intelligence. Mr. Davenport brought the doctor. He examined his patients and told the assembled friends that the parting hour was at hand. They then gathered silently and solemnly around the bed and waited for the angels of death to free the ransomed spirit. Another friend joined them, and sat with the hand of the dying clasp in hers. He never spoke and never moved until just before sunset. Then he suddenly opened his eyes. They rested for a moment upon the portrait which he had ordered to be hung at the foot of his bed, and at the pot of lilies, in full bloom, standing beneath it, a smile full of angelic radiance for an instant played upon his lips. His eyes closed again, and almost immediately opened, fixed, glazed, expressionless. The moral casket was untreasured. He was no longer there. His spirit passed away sweetly and gently, like the slumbering of an infant. The change was scarcely perceptible to those around. So wrote one of the friends who witnessed his release, adding, I have beheld his mortal remains placed in the coffin, and his countenance was so placid looking as I have seen him often in his sleep in later days. 
in one of the loveliest corners of kensal green cemetery where bending trees waved their green canopy over his grave and a richly broidered mantle of flowers covers the earth lie his mortal remains no flattering falsehood is graven upon his tombstone but a simple epitaph ending with the inspired words which so distinctly apply to such as he blessed is that servant whom his lord when he cometh finds watching other hands besides my own have hung wreaths upon that tombstone and laid choice bouquets upon that flower-covered grave in token of remembrance the last offering was a basket of moss filled with immortelles of varying hues and on the handle was woven in white flowers the last name that was uttered by his lips in a previous chapter i spoke of a trunk which he pointed out to me as containing letters i found three enclosed in each other and addressed to me the first related entirely to business subjects it carefully explained matters which my absence of business knowledge would have rendered difficult of comprehension the second contained various wishes with which he urged my compliance one was that i would resume my profession and resist the entreaties of relatives or friends to abandon the stage until certain objects were accomplished another entreaty was that should he die during the winter season i would not leave england until the ensuing summer as the change of climate would inevitably prove injurious to my health other wishes referred to the care and education of the little greys now wholly left under my charge other requests are not of a nature to be mentioned here everyone was dictated with a view to promote my welfare if any desire has remained uncomplied with it is because the fulfilment was not possible the third letter was a farewell written with deep emotion the outpouring of a loving and exalted spirit a letter full of thankfulness full of tenderness gratefully reviewing the past and assuring me of his preparation for the future the rocks of doubt upon which he had once been stranded had been melted in the broad and living waters of truth whose waves dance upon the shores of a glorious eternity that farewell letter belongs perhaps to these memoirs which are written at his request i have read the valued document again and again before i could come to a decision on this point although i have allowed it to be perused by many friends i feel its language too sacred to be recorded where cold and worldly eyes have the right to read i may be wrong in this conclusion but i yield to an instinct which i have not strength to overcome i passed six weeks at the residences of various friends and then prepared to resume my profession compliance with mr mawett's last wishes compelled me to remain in england until summer commenced london was now full of distressing associations i therefore made engagements for a tour in the provinces to occupy the months which must pass before i could return to my own country my own family i travelled from city to city accompanied only by mrs renshaw remaining a few weeks at each town 
and acting every night, if that could be called acting, which was but a soulless imitation of my former stage embodiments, I could only coldly copy what I had done spontaneously in more inspired moments. I lost, for the time being, all power of original personation. We visited Newcastle, Leeds, Hull, Sheffield, Manchester, Liverpool. The gentlemanlike conduct of Mr. Davis caused me to return to Newcastle and fulfill the engagement which had been so painfully broken in upon. I would gladly have avoided that city, but I felt bound to secure him against loss. Newcastle was, consequently, the first town which I reappeared. In Manchester, I acted in the very theatre where I had made my first English debut, but under what different circumstances? As I sat alone at the manager's table, through the long, dreary rehearsals, the incidents of the past four years, many and many a time, passed in visionary review before me. My intercourse with the Reverend Mr. Smithson and his wife was renewed. Highly prized their friendship had been years before, but it was at this period an inestimable boon. During my engagement in Liverpool, I was supported by Mr. Barry Sullivan, one of the most gifted performers on the English stage. Armand was produced in every city and always with success. In Liverpool, Mr. Davenport enacted his original part on my benefit night. The managers of the Haymarket Theatre accorded him this privilege for one evening only. He arrived in Liverpool, where he was a great favourite, in time for the performance and left the next morning to act in London at night. It is somewhat strange that, in spite of the sad events related in this and several previous chapters, I left England with the reputation of a comic rather than a tragic actress. So little may the public and private history of an actor be in accordance. Just before my departure, a memoir of me was written by Bale Bernard, author of The Broken Heart and Passing Cloud, etc., which concludes with the following paragraph. While Mrs. Mawet has a tender and pathos that render her Imogen and Viola scarcely equaled in our memory, there is such an entire adaptation of her whole person, look, and spirit to the blander sphere of comedy that we cannot but feel it is her true one. It is marked by an enjoyment that shows at once it is most natural to her, however her tears and gentleness may charm us to the contrary. But her comedy has its distinction. We think it peculiarly Shakespearean, owing that the thrill of poetic feeling which winds through all its passages, that mixed exposition of the ideal and the true, which stamps all Shakespeare's writing as the profoundest insight into man, receives the happiest illustration in the genius of Mrs. Mowat. Sensibility and mirth are ever neighbors to each other, and our fair artist well interprets what our best poet has so well divined. In the comedy of modern life, she has unquestionable merits, but if it impress us the less forcibly, it is on account of its lower grade, which limits expression. 
It is in Beatrice and Rosalind that she must be witnessed to be esteemed, equaled by some in art, and surpassed in force by many. She alone has that poetic fervor which imparts to them their truth and makes our laughter ever ready to tremble into tears. During my engagement in Liverpool, I was joined by Mr. S., a valued brother-in-law, who had just arrived from America. I passed a few weeks in London, bidding adieu to cherished friends, and under my brother-in-law's protection, set sail for America, accompanied by Mrs. Renshaw. We embarked on the 9th of July, 1851, in the steamship Pacific, commanded by Captain Nye. End of chapter 22